It's good to be with you all. Um, when I was uh, finished with college, I did a two-year internship with RUF at Ole Miss, University of Mississippi. And uh, in the springtime there, one of the students had a house uh, near the Mississippi River, and his parents invited us to go there. We we're just going to go goof off, uh, camp out, and all sorts of stuff. And uh, a few days before we left, the parents said, uh, hey, tell your friends we, we want uh, we want to take them all out to dinner. And he said, oh man, okay. I'll tell him, he said, hey, uh, we're going to go. My parents are going to take us. They're going to take us to Doe's. And he's like, this is like the best steak you will ever have. And so I was like, great. All right, they're paying for dinner. That's awesome. And so we went. We stopped by their house first, a really nice house. Uh, so I'm like, oh man, this is going to be awesome. So we go to, and I think in my head, I was just thinking, hey, we're in the Mississippi Delta. Had this vision of like an antebellum mansion, maybe some magnolia trees, and we start driving through this small delta town, and <clears throat> we drove by the place. I didn't even notice that they, they parked. We pulled in behind them, and the facade of the building—it wasn't, you know—I don't think it was designed to get anyone super excited. It almost looked like that they didn't even want you to notice the place. Like it, at some point, the name of the restaurant was painted on there, but that looked like it had been done a few decades before we arrived, and. I'm walking in, and, and you, li you literally walk into the kitchen. And I thought, oh, I think I've walked in the wrong door, but look, I'm following this family, okay? So uh, we're walking to the kitchen. It's not uh, a super nice kitchen, but it's open. They don't mind people walking through there, which can be a good thing. Love transparency, but also um, lots of people walking through a kitchen. And so uh, we sit down, and I just remember thinking, man, this is just not adding up. Like, I feel like I'm in, like, a quasi-abandoned convenience store, and yet this I, this guy mentioned it was a good steak, and this family is really, you know, well off, and they're treating us, and, you know, I'd heard that President Obama, he was campaigning, this is before he was president, but, you know, he'd been campaigning, and he stopped there, and so I just thought, what, what is going, this is so strange, like, and, uh, yeah, the things were just not adding up in my head. I had these high expectations of, of what was going to happen, and yet um, I was just prepared to be utterly disappointed. Um, we are going to kind of parachute. Actually, I forgot to even ask Justin what you all have been going through. Last time it was you were in Timothy, and this tonight we're just going to be parachuting into a verse in the Old Testament uh, in, the in the middle of Genesis 12. And if you're familiar at all with Genesis or the life of Abraham, at the beginning of Genesis 12, God shows up to Abram. His name's Abram at this time. It's before he comes Abraham. And Abram is, does not worship God. He lives in rural Iraq. And God says, I want to make a great nation out of you. And through you, I want to bless all the nations of the world. And Abram believes him. And he follows him. And he takes him and his family and a bunch of other people over 1,500 miles by foot. And they, they kind of go through like Syria, what's now today Syria, and then, and then back into what's now like the Jerusalem area. And they settle, and you see, there's like amazing faith. Like, Abram does amazing things. Like, he follows God's call. He's never met God before. He wasn't worshiping God. He wasn't looking for God. But God found him, and he trusted him. And then he sets up all these altars to worship God. And it's, it's like one faith success story after another. But then tonight, what we realize is this land that God has promised Abram, there's a famine in it. And God promised Abram that he was going to make a great nation out of him. Except that 
Abram and his wife are in their 70s, and his wife's barren. They've never had children. And in your 70s, if you haven't had children, it's not looking likely that you will have children. And now Abram is not only doubting God, but you're going to, we'll see in this passage that Abram, it's not only that he just struggles to believe God, but he really falls flat on his face in this passage. And, and so we're going to look at, at that tonight. We're, we're going to kind of look, we're going to kind of like take his doubt and, and, and like break it apart. And, and we'll see there, there's kind of two roots to Abraham's struggle to, to believe. And one is his fear, uh, and the second is his priorities. Uh, so we're going to look at that, and then we're going to look at, at God's response uh, to Abram's unfaithfulness. So I'm, I'm going to read for us from Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men concerning orders, gave orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we do thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the sun poking through uh, on an otherwise uh, blustery and gloomy day. Uh, Lord, we do thank you uh, for Mother's Day. And uh, Lord, on a day that is uh, just meant to be so enjoyed and, and so packed with meaning and celebration, Lord, we also know there's just also a lot of pain and angst uh, on this day as well. And so, Lord, uh, as, as we read your word tonight uh, and as we dive into it, Lord, regardless of what kind of uh, day we have had or week we have had, it is our prayer, uh, Lord, that you would meet with us tonight, Lord, that you would plant your word deep into our hearts and that you might remake and remold our hearts as those with hope uh, because you are God and you are good and so we pray all of this in our Savior's name. Amen. Uh, if you read Scripture, there's hardly anyone that uh, spent as much time around Jesus, uh, saw Jesus do as many miracles as, as his disciples. And one of those was Peter. Uh, Peter was, he, he witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration, he, he witnessed God say about Jesus, God the Father, say, this is my son, listen to him. 
Uh, Peter saw Jesus uh, raise someone from the dead. Uh, he saw him heal sick people. He saw him change uh, jars of water into amazing wine. Uh, and yet, after Jesus died, when it was no longer, or it never really was cool to be associated with Jesus, but it certainly wasn't after his death, Peter, he was not the only disciple to betray him. They all, in a sense, denied him. But, G, but Peter's is probably the most famous denial and betrayal of Jesus. And that story always strikes me. Uh, and, and maybe because we live in an era where there, there's so many stories like that, where you hear of people who uh, claim not only to love Jesus, but Peter even said, like, Lord, I will never betray you. Like, others may fall away. I will never do that. And maybe you've known someone who had that sort of confidence in Jesus, or you've read an article about them, and then, like, you know, three or four years later, they have this crisis of faith, and they abandon him. What do we do with that? What do you do when you hear stories like that, when you read stories like that, or when you know someone that's done that? What do you do when you have moments like that? Where you go against what you profess to believe? Or you entertain a thought and you begin kind of dwelling on that thought for way longer than you ever thought would be wise. Or you end up doing something or saying something that you thought you would never say or do. And you're confronted with your hypocrisy. And, and your failure, what do you do in those moments? The passage we, ju we just read, <laughs> Abram's there. I mean, Abram in, in, in the previous section, in the same chapter, has just traveled with, with his whole clan, 1,500 miles. He's set up all these altars. He's worshipped God. And now, in, in verses 10 through 20 especially, we, we kind of just see his faith unravel. We see him put his family at risk, especially his wife. Uh, he risks his life. I mean, honestly, if we're honest, Abram should have died at the end of this passage. And he doesn't. And all of this is rooted in him kind of seeing the circumstances around him and saying, you know what, this isn't looking good. I've got a better plan. And you see that here in the verses. It starts off right in verse 10. Um, there is a famine. There's a famine in the land. Uh, the, the passage kind of starts off with, with kind of foreboding bad news. Like this is, this section's not, not, not about to be a happy section. Um, Abram was promised a land. He was promised a people. This is the land that would later be described in scripture as the land flowing with milk and honey. And Abram's like, it is not that right now. There's a famine. There's no water. And they're living in an era of history where you, you had to move. Like if this happened, you literally had to move. And so Abram's looking around him and thinking, okay, I know God's called me here. This is where God has led him. But he chooses to go down to Egypt. And at some point on the way down there, he knows what's going to happen. And to kind of give you a little background of the ancient Near East culture this time, you know, there were traveling nomadic groups uh, often. And when you entered into a new town, and we're not told exactly how many people Abram had in his clan, but it was, he, was lot, he was well off. There was lots of people, lots of livestock, uh, big enough to where you would be noticed. If you entered a new territory that was, you know, ruled or occupied by someone else, you'd be noticed, and soon you'd find out from some people like, hey, we need to set up an agreement. If, if you're going to graze here, if you're going to live here, if you're going to be here for a while, uh, we're going to have to set up some sort of, like, payment. And that meant, that could have meant uh, currency, that, that could have meant uh, belongings, livestock, uh, and it certainly could have meant people. 
especially if there's a beautiful woman involved. And, and there certainly was in this case. And Abram knew also that if there's a beautiful woman who's married, they are not going to take her while she's married. They will kill the husband, so then they can take her. Then she'll be an unmarried person. They can take her without, you know, going against whatever law didn't allow them to take a married woman. And so he knows all this. He knows ancient Near East culture. And so he goes on the way down there. He's like, you know what? If they know you're married to me, I know they're going to think you're beautiful. So how about this? Say you're my sister. Which, which we do find out later that they are kind of half-sisters, uh, half-siblings. Um, but but Abram's, Abram's not trying to like, you know, uh, he's not trying to get a truth out of this as we look later. He's, he's looking out for himself and he's saying, you know what? Why don't you just say you're my sister? Then they'll just take you and I'll be okay. And essentially what he's doing is he's prostituting his wife. He's going to a territory where he knows what's going to happen. And he knows especially what's going to happen to his wife. And he just offers her up. He gives her up. The first 10 verses, Abram is living almost step by step according to God's promises. God calls him and he literally walks by faith into this new territory. This part of the chapter, you almost seem completely abandoned God's word, God's call on his life. He's living according to his own wisdom. One author put it this way, he says, but Abram's logic, natural as it was, which it was, I mean, he, if, if, if we're in Abram's shoes, this seems like the, the natural solution. He says, but Abram's logic, natural as it was, was fatally flawed. He had forgotten that the God whom he served was greater than his problems. Abram did what we so often and so easily do. When things get crazy, when our circumstances get crazy, we think these circumstances are, are, are too big for God. We may not say that out loud, but we, but we act as if that is true. And, and, and Abram certainly did. He's afraid. He, he, he's afraid, and underneath this fear is, is a lack of faith in God's promises. And they kind of go together. He's, he's failing to trust God's promises, and underneath that is fear. He's afraid that God will not provide. Where are the areas you're afraid it's not going to work out? And what is that leading you to do? I remember talking to a student a number of years ago who had, I'd heard in a group, publicly embarrassed her friend, brought up something that she knew would embarrass this person. Um, I hear about it, meet on campus, MTSU. Why? What happened? What was going on? She felt guilty. She knew what she'd done. I said, well, what, what, what led to that? What, why, why do you think you did that in that moment? And she said, I was afraid. I, I was afraid I was losing my friends. I was afraid I was losing my friend group. And, and so the, the only thing that seemed natural at that time was kind of disparage this person in front of others so they would like her less and like me more. Our fear leads us to do all sorts of crazy things. What are the ways you are afraid right now 
that the Lord will not provide? What, what are the situations in your life right now that you don't think are going to work out? That you don't think you're going to be cared for? Maybe it's finances. When we're, when we're afraid things won't work out financially, we will do all sorts of crazy stuff. We'll be up at night. Um, and and maybe, that, maybe that's, the, that's the way you, you go. When you're fearful, it's just, you just spin out those thoughts. <laughs> you know, I'm afraid this is not going to work out. And if this doesn't work out, then that won't work out. And then I'll just be a complete failure and a mess and no one will like me and we'll be living in a van down by the river in 10 years. Um, like, we can, if you're like me, you can get from, from things are okay to, oh my gosh, wait, this might happen in like 0.7 seconds. You know what I mean? We can spin those thoughts out and leave ourselves paralyzed. Uh, maybe it can lead you to do things to take control, like Abram does here. Okay, this is not what I thought I was getting myself into. There's a famine here. Uh, I've got a better plan. Let's go to Egypt. That might sacrifice my wife, but you know what? We'll eat. That'll be much better. Um, yeah, maybe you'll be forced to do things you thought you would never do, but you know what? It'll, it'll help provide in the midst of this. It'll provide comfort. It'll provide a sense of control. What are you tempted to do when you feel like God will not provide? Are you looking to him? Can you look to him? What does it look like to actually take God, to, to trust God? Okay, so, so, take a case study. What would it look like to, do, to not do what Abram does here? I remember my pastor just simply asked me this question one time. He said, are you praying? Are you taking any of this to God in prayer before you act? Or are you merely asking God to bless the plans you're making? It's so easy. We, we can make decisions really, we've always been able to make decisions really quickly in our mind. And we live in an era of history where we can not only make a decision in our mind, but we can like act on it in, in three seconds. I want this, I'll buy this. It's done. It'll be here tomorrow. Um... Are we bringing, is God a part of the equation in our decisions? Or are we merely following up with him afterwards to ask his blessing? Abram's fear leads him to make a decision that puts his life in jeopardy, that puts his family in jeopardy. Um, but Abram's not only problem, is it's not just his fear that leads him to do this, it's, it's also his priorities. Uh, and you can see this as they're heading down into Egypt. Um, if you look just past uh, verse 11 and 12, uh, he says, um, you know, when, when the Egyptians uh, see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Verse 13, say you are my sister, that it may, well, that it may go well with me. Abram has one priority. <laughs> he has a clear number one priority in his life heading down to Egypt, and that is Abram. Abram cares a lot about Abram, heading down. Like, okay, there's a famine in the land, things are going crazy, who knows what life is going to be like in Egypt, but hey, first and foremost, you say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me. He's not like hiding his motives, you know, kind of noble, he's very honest about what's going on. Um, say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Uh, Abram cares a lot about Abram. His number one concern is him. 
How much better would Abram's life in this situation have gone if he had merely trusted that God would provide? We know the end of this passage already, so we know they don't die. But they could have, and they should have. He puts his whole family in danger. Who knows the amount of trust that was broken between his wife and him, uh, between his clan and him? We're not told all the relational nitty-gritty, but clearly people are aware now that, that, that Abram's got a priority and it's not me. It's certainly him. He's thinking about himself first. He's leaning on his own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Abram is completely leaning on his own understanding. Why? He, 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 his number one priority is him. And, and so, of course, he's going to lean on his own understanding. Of course, he's going to lean on what works out best for him. When he is the main thought going on in his head when he is his main concern it's it's no surprise then that he's going to lean on his own understanding he's going to trust himself over others and over god could it be that much of your fear and your anxiety is due to the fact that you're putting a lot of trust in your plans over and above God's care for you. How does God respond to this? Abram followed God so clearly. Here he's clearly leaning on his own understanding. He's clearly forgotten God's care and his faithfulness for him. And yet, when you look at, at the end of this section, at the end of chapter 12... Um, a couple of amazing things has happened. One is that Pharaoh, who's no like moral all-star, is scolding. He scolds Abram like, hey, why did you do this? You know, we're, we're not told a ton of things about Pharaoh, but we know he's not a great guy. And yet Abram's in this weird situation where he's like being scolded by someone who doesn't know God. And he's like, hey, why would, why would you ever do that? And yet right after that moment, God sends plagues to Egypt on account of Sarai. And Abram, we're told, leaves rich with lots of livestock, with his wife, with his own life intact. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Chapter 13, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Verse 2, now Abram was very rich in livestock and in silver and gold. Abram makes out like a bandit in this situation. He falls flat on his face. He fails his family. He abandons trust in God. And yet when he leaves Egypt, he leaves rich. He leaves cared for. He leaves provided for. This is the essence. If you're looking for an illustration of mercy in scripture, this is it. God is so merciful to Abram. It's almost frustrating. I hope you're a little bit frustrated hearing this. Like, what? That's not right. How did Abram get out of there? Okay. He didn't deserve that. He deserves punishment. Yeah. And God is merciful to him. God shows him mercy. Why? 
Why would God do this? Why would God put up with someone like Abram, much less in the coming chapters continue to promise good to him and continue to use him and continue to make him the father of many nations? Why would God do that? We don't know all the reasons, but we do know this. God is committed to keeping his promise to redeem his people. And he will use whatever means possible to do that. When you read through scripture in Genesis 3, man falls into sin and immediately after that there's this promise that through the seed of the woman, God will crush the enemy. That's why there's all those genealogies in scripture. And Abram is carrying on that seed. It's going to be through the line of Abram that God will defeat death and defeat Satan and defeat evil. It's going to be through that line that he rescues his people. And, and, this, and this instance is just one instance in many of the pattern of how God works. You flip over the next book of the Bible, God does the exact same thing, almost exact same situation. He rescues his people out of Egypt. And if you keep reading scripture and you keep reading those genealogies, the New Testament begins with Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Ultimately, all of this is pointing to God redeeming and rescuing his people through Jesus. Our rescuer. who came for us not while we were looking for him, not while we were good, not while we were on our best behavior, but the Bible says actually is, is said while we are enemies with him, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were enemies, not, not while we were good, not while we were looking for him, pursuing him, obeying him, exhibiting great faith and obedience. While we were dead in our sin, enemies from him, Christ died for the ungodly. We're going to close tonight with a song. Amen. Um, he will hold me fast. And I love the progression of that first, that first stanza. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. And, and then listen to these next two verses. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. I love that. I often focus on the, okay, God is going to be good. He will hold me fast. He must. If, if this relationship is going to work out between us and God, it's going, to be, it's going to have to be because he is faithful, not because of our faithfulness. And we see this in Abram and we see it in us. And if you read this passage and you think, Abram doesn't deserve that, neither do I, neither do you. That's the essence of the mercy shown to Abram. It's the same essence of the mercy shown to us. He must hold us fast. He has to deliver us. We cannot deliver ourselves. You're going to go through fearful paths. You might be on one right now. Your faith might be failing right now. And I'm sure Abram wondered at times, why am I, why did I just take my whole family, 1,500, who knows how long that took them? 
to this place and now there's a famine and my wife's still barren. He never would have written his story like that. Let's go back to Greenville, Mississippi. We're in that dilapidated building. Uh, I was introduced to lots of foods I'd never had before. Tamales, not so great. But then they bring out the steaks. And let me tell you, they backed up their talk. Jeff Ruby's has nothing on Doe's Eat Place in Greenville, Mississippi. It was melted like butter. And of course, I, I, at the end, I was like, of course, I, sh I should have known that. I mean, this place, sure, it's dilapidated. But I should have known this is going to work out well. I, I, I've met this family before. They weren't trying to trick us. And of course. The future president was going to be eating there later. I, I should have known. Of course. I, they cared for us. They took us there because they cared for us. God is taking Abram through a place where he is not certain to show him that if this is going to work out, it's going to be because God works it out, not because Abram is good. And, and, and what you see is that Abram begins to get this. Abram's a, a mixed bag. You're going to see highs and lows. But, but you see him delivered from God's mercy. And then when you look at verse 13, he literally... He literally does the word, the word repent literally means to turn. Abram literally turns from Egypt and goes back to the Negev. And it says back to the place. Look at verse 4 of chapter 13. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. I don't know where you are tonight. I don't know what, are the, what the ways in which you are tempted to run from God are the ways in which you are currently running from God, but he will never turn away those who come to him. You can't do much worse than what Abram's done. And God invites you to come back to him, to call upon the name of the Lord, because he is kind. His kindness leads us to repentance. His kindness can lead you to turn back to him, to worship him, his kindness can lead you to forgive other people. Oh man, what an amazing testimony. In a world right now where we're great at exposing lots of things about other people, how awesome would it be to continue to do that and to continue to extend forgiveness? Only, we can only do that when we know we need forgiveness and we've been given it to us in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you are faithful. Uh, Lord, when we read this passage, uh, we are reminded of that, Lord. Uh, we confess to you tonight uh, the ways that we are like Abram. Lord, we struggle to believe uh, that you will take care of us. We struggle to believe that you're good. Lord, forgive us for the ways we run from you and mistrust you. And Lord, bring us back to the cross where you show us your faithfulness and your goodness, that you are God who keeps his promises. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.